Thanks. You actually like it? I'm going to be doing a photo shoot soon, actually. This isn't going on the podcast, is it? Ah. Shameless plug. Um, actually trying to launch a clothing brand here soon, Daily Bread Co. So if any of you are interested in buying clothing at cost and being in photos, let me know. After this, after this, after we talk about what does God hate, God hates shameless plugs. be a... Uh, uh, but in all seriousness, welcome tonight, everybody. Um, always excited for these nights uh, in their design intentionally that no matter where you're at in Christianity, your understanding of it, if you believe in God, if you don't, if you're questioning who he is in your life right now, uh, these nights are designed for you in each category. And so we are diving in and we have been diving into difficult questions all semester that are kind of explanations of the core of Christianity and Christian beliefs, and so tonight we get to go over the question, what does God hate? What does God hate? And so, again, just to preface the night like we, like we always do, um, the challenge tonight is in understanding Christianity that what we believe and how we believe it and how we live it is shaped by Scripture. We believe Scripture is God-breathed, and not only God-breathed, but infallible and inerrant. That means it's the only thing worth living by. It sustained the test of time. It has held up many men and many women and children's lives on its truth. And so that's what we base our lives on, our understanding of things on. So any answer you hear me give tonight uh, comes from just a week and a half-ish worth of study on this, uh, coupled with just life experience and anything else, but all from the Word of God. And so uh, just a challenge to everybody, too, that in trying to understand Christianity and its beliefs and core um, ideologies, uh, let's press in together and see what Scripture has to say about this question, not maybe so much so what culture has to say uh, or what our past experiences, our emotions may have to say about it, too. That was kind of my challenge to self in this one, so same challenge issued to everybody else tonight. Sound good? So before we get going here, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in here and lay some groundwork for the night. So Father, thank you so much for the chance to come together, God, again, for everybody who's in here, no matter where they're at, God, knowing there may be those who do not know you, may not want to know you, God, maybe those who love you and want to know how to love you more and just know more about you. We give thanks and praise for each of them here, God, and we just ask that you would shape minds and through that renew hearts. And through that, bring life. God, we trust you and praise you. And all we ask is for you to move as you always are. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So to answer this question, and if you've been before, we kind of give a nutshell answer. Um, but a couple of them kind of require some groundwork to be laid. And when I say groundwork, I mean uh, giving things definitions. Um, so for hate, specifically, what does God hate? Uh, first thing that comes to mind when we think of hate we, I don't know, you might think of an ex, you might think of a bad parent, you might think of a class, you might think of a teacher, um, all of those being emotional responses of hate, right? An emotion, probably the most passionate emotion, if we were honest, it's the most easy to feed as a human, is hate. Uh, it's easier to do than love, it's just natural. If something's hard or good and makes life hard on us, it's easy to hate it. But we can see all throughout the Bible that hate isn't so much so an emotion, but rather a covenant between creator and creation. All right, so if you're a note taker, that's probably the safest kind of groundwork you could build off of tonight. 
is this idea that hate in the Bible, specifically God's hate, is a just repayment from creator to creation. And we'll get more into that. So that is first answering the question, what can we look at the Bible, specifically God's hate to be? And it is that hate in God's sense is a just repayment from creator to creation. But what does that mean? It means God favors those he chooses and does not favor those he does not. And in layman's terms, in the simplest ways we could break it down, hate and not hate in the Bible, or hate contrasted with love in the Bible, again, is just repayment. And when I say just in that, meaning God's justness, right? Perfect God, sinful man, one is just, one is not, meaning a just repayment from creator to creation. So for righteous who God makes righteous, and for those who are wicked, who God uses to build up the righteous. And that's a theme all throughout Scripture that we'll dive in more and more to tonight. But the short answer is that God, in His perfect holiness and His perfection, hates sin and its manifestation of sinners. God, in His perfect holiness, hates sin and its manifestation of sinners. So, in simpler words, um, or as we can see in Psalm 145:20, because we always want an anchor verse in anything that we talk about or study or discuss. Psalm 145:20, if you want to mark it down or turn there, it says, "The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy." Uh, notice it's. Discussing persons, not necessarily entities or beings. It is specific persons, the righteous and the wicked. So, what does God hate? He hates the wicked. Four is open for questions. Old Kaylee, getting us started here. Um, in this one, it says, um, <laughs> a Greek definition of but like I mean I destroy uh, bugs but I don't hate them <laughs> I just you know functionally you're hating them you're ending their existence so that's so to destroy something is to hate it in a way in a way the bible no. In all seriousness, uh, God preserves what he loves and destroys what he hates. Um, that's consistent. If you want to see in Psalm 139, 19 through 22, the psalmist says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And that's always fun in MC. She... Uh, she lets us fly. And 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So to answer that question again, Kaylee, God and his holiness preserves those he loves, his children, and he will destroy those he does not love, who he hates. Again, less favors, it could be said, um, and the wicked. So. The second one or first one? Second one, Psalm 139, 19 through 22. that help? Another one is Psalm 11. Yeah, Sarah, there we go. So, God hates those he he created that are wicked, even though he knew that they were never going to do him any good. Ask that again. (laughs) Like, it's because, like, I know... God hates his creation. He knew would eventually hate him, but still made them... Why, so why did he create? No, no, that's not okay. what I'm asking. That's not what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> so he hates those who are wicked that he created, even though he knew that they were going to be wicked because of what they did. But he did it. Like he knew he was going to hate them. That's it. Like, but he still made them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Taylor, man. I love that when the audience asks my question for me. What's the question there? Is it why would God make something he knew he would hate or? Is that the question you're asking? Why would God make? Yeah, well, that's pretty fun when I'm, I'm trying to answer a specific question here. If you turn to Romans 9, Romans 9, 19 through 24, Romans 9, 19 through 24, we can kind of see this question um, in eternal perspective. As you flip there, one way to help that question is kind of why would God do that, right? And there's a lot of stemming questions from that. So why would God make something that would be wicked in the first place if he's God? Um, why would God make something he knew he would hate? Why would God allow, you know, insert that, especially when it harms his children, especially when, so I understand the question. But as you guys turn there, Romans nine nineteen through 24, says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? This is talking about God's creation uh, and God's perspective of his creation. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So think in the context of those who is wicked, that who is hated, asking, why have you made me like this? And the response is, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? In that instance, the church, God's children, and another for dishonorable use, those who are not. What if God, and this is kind of the answer to your question um, in a question form, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And the seal on that question is, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews 
only, but also from the Gentiles. And this is a safe spot to go ahead and reestablish a baseline of what is wicked and who is wicked. And, and so in Christianity, especially authentic Christianity, holding the viewpoint of total depravity, who can help me out maybe from the audience who has been to a couple of these before or has been under any teaching here of who is wicked in the eyes of God from birth? Everyone. So... If he hates the wicked, though, that presents the question of, does he hate all? No. The reason that I can say this is because God doesn't view time as we do. So we're still a work in progress, right? If we can say we know Christ, if we can say we have relationship with him, we are still suffering, we're still failing, but we're in the act of sanctification. God knows this, and God sees the finished product. God being outside of time. You have to imagine time to us, and this is, like, I want to tackle this concept here, but I would do it such an injustice. There's no way of just trying to understand and articulate how God sees time, because to us, it's linear. It's, we, it has to be. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. To God, it just is. He's outside of time. He was before time. He created time. So there's no way for him to be changing along with time. Rather, everything he has cemented in time. Does that make sense? So when I say that, I mean when he hates the wicked, he doesn't just see uh, the wicked at birth, right? He doesn't just see uh, the worst example we could give or best in wickedness. He doesn't just see Adolf Hitler as a baby and hate that Adolf. He knows what Adolf Hitler would go on to be. Even more so, what's wicked in the eyes of the Lord? Sin. And does sin have a greater than or less than in, in the scale of repayment, so to say? If I steal a candy bar and I'm trying to escape the laws of the authority placed over me by the local government here, is that any greater or less than in the eyes of God than shooting Tyler, my roommate, point blank in the head for no reason? In the eyes of God? No. On an eternal scale, it's no different. And so that's, again, just kind of a resetting of a baseline of what wickedness is um, because it's easy to ask that question, um, God, why did you make me this way? And I have kind of the fun fan theory. It's not really a fan theory. It's my belief, what I think Scripture teaches, is that those who would come to know God are, as I said, known by God. And when I say known, I mean written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's scriptural right? You don't know that yet. If you're born and you will eventually become a Christian, you don't know that as a baby. You can't. You don't have any capacity of understanding, but the Lord does. So imagine this, that all of creation, all of human creation comes into this life at the side of, have any of you grown up with grandparents who watch The Price is Right and you see Kaplinko or whatever it's called, Plachinko, Kaplinko, whatever, right? So you all kind of get dropped in. Instead of the top, imagine you get dropped in the side. You're all these little discs, or if it makes it easier, imagine a Connect Four board, okay? All of humankind gets dropped into the side rather than the top. And the thing that's miraculous about this is God's children will rise to the top. It defies the laws of gravity, or in other words, it defies what's natural for a human to sink to the very bottom and then depravity, right? How are they getting to the top? God is pulling them up to the top with His grace, but in the meantime, they're hitting different pegs. They might go sideways. We might fail. We might present signs of wickedness, right? What's wickedness? Sin. 
are Christians still sinners? Paul would go so far to say the least of these. Because right? we can actually understand sin if we have a relationship with Christ. So we may hit pegs, we may go sideways, but God is always pulling us up. He knows what we're going to be at the end of our days. But for those who are wicked, they are always constantly falling in their natural capacity all the way down to the bottom. Right? So God sees that. He's outside of time and sees that. Does that help kind of answer the question? Sweet. Yeah, we have a few questions that are pretty good so far. So I'm going to start off with the first one that we got, and it is, how are we supposed to treat people that God hates? How are we supposed to treat people that God hates? Well, question back to question. Well, not really a question. It's more of an obvious statement. Is we're not God, meaning we're not judge. So scripture commands his fo- Christ followers to be uh, impartial, showing no partiality. That means not looking down on each of God's creation, even more so, it calls us to love our enemies in the, in the context of wanting their souls to come to know the Lord, right? And so basically, as Christ followers, if we have a relationship with Christ, we're not the judge, jury, and executioner. We are simply those, as Spurgeon would say, if somebody go to hell, then let them go to hell over us clinging at their knees uh, before they walk freely. And so that's our role. Uh, We don't know who's saved and who's not. We don't know who's wicked and who's not. A lot of times we can be partial. We can look out on the world if we know Christ. Christians are the best at this, by the way, whether you are one or not one and you're in here tonight. If you can see the hypocrisy of American Christianity and the sense that they would have, uh, not to paint with a broad stroke here, but by and large, um, avoid specific conversations with those who may be leading a life of sin, Uh, to avoid an awkward circumstance or a difficult circumstance, even though that's causing them eternal suffering eventually, right? Our job is to evangelize as Christians. Uh, That's what Christ calls us to do, to go forth and make disciples, not to hate our enemies. Uh, Again, we are called to view other creation as what it is in God's creation and seek uh, for them to come to know the Lord. All right, this one's kind of long, so bear with me. If God hates sin and the manifestation of sin in sinners, why does he choose to save us from that sin instead of just wiping us out and starting completely over? I know for his glory, but can you go more in depth on why? I think... Do you need me to read that again? Yeah, you you can read it again for for the podcast there. All right. If God hates sin and the manifestation of sin in sinners, why does he choose to save us from that sin instead of just wiping us all out and starting completely over? I know for his glory, but can you go more in depth on why? Uh, I just got to go back to the Romans 9.23 there. It is, it's just succinct. It's easy. Uh, it just kind of sums it up. I know that's a heady question. Um, Oh, cool. It's up there. Oh, that's helpful. Huh. How long have we been doing that? Wow. All right. Cool. So if God hates sin and the manifestation of sin in sinners, uh, why does he choose to save us from that sin instead of just wiping us all out and starting completely over? I know for, I know for his glory. But can you go in more in depth on all caps why? 
um, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, uh, for his church to win, for himself to be glorified. Uh, a lot of times when we have these questions, it kind of can seem pointless why there has to be this life. Like if we can read that God is going to win, he will have his justice, his children will reign supreme with him. It kind of seems like, well, why not just start there? Life wouldn't be worth enjoying if that was the case. Um, I would argue, and from my sanity and just my being, I believe that the Lord put us here, um, even in the midst of great suffering, uh, because Scripture also tells us that suffering as a Christ follower is light and momentary compared to the weight of glory we'll get to experience. And so to answer the deeper why uh, for our enjoyment of His glory, that's what we revel in. Yeah. For our enjoyment of his like glory. I'm just a person. <coughs> yeah, like why are we alive? Like, who, like what? Anybody else can be alive? Yeah, but like, like I get it, but like I don't get it. Like I'm a person, so I don't get it. But like, isn't that weird? That doesn't quite make sense. That's grace. I think what Kaylee's getting at is uh, the grace that's involved in this. Oh, and let me just go back to one that we kind of had, I think it was a couple weeks ago at this point, is that there's a common grace shown to all of creation that it's breathing. Uh, scripture paints this clearly in um, the fact that we're provided for, right? All of humanity. Is anybody kind of tracking with me here? Um, those who are Christ followers and not uh, all have the equal opportunity to breathe, and it's not because they taught themselves how to breathe, it's because God is putting air in their lungs, but it just goes back to, Kaylee, that's grace. Um, God didn't have to put you here. Uh, the reason is, God didn't have to put any of us here. Um, and when you understand that, you ask that question, why, why would he, why did he? Uh, and again, it reigns true because he loves you, and he wanted you, through a relationship with Christ, again, that is the bedrock of enjoying God and His sovereignty is to enjoy Him in all things. Um, yeah, Pastor Kyle. Yeah, I'll say something else to answer the question to, uh, to give more of a why. Uh, if you remember, God has designed His relationship with us in covenant. If you look all the way back in Genesis 9 after the flood, uh, why He doesn't just wipe us out is because He promised His lineage. He also promised that a lineage of Christ would come promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ, but also the promises that he made for his future glory that we have yet to see, if he were to wipe us out, he would not be keeping his promises there. So yeah, and even just to build off that, if he took his disciples home, or more so even just went ahead and established his kingdom, um, Jesus got to answer that question for the disciples in Acts, that Jesus laid this very same thing out for him, that the kingdom would be established, the kingdom being God's perfection would be established, that this earth would be made new. And they asked that question, well, would you go ahead and do it? And in layman's terms, they said, well, would you go ahead and do that? Uh, after Jesus laid out, that's the plan of the Father. And he said, no, uh, it's God's timing. Uh, until then, as Christ followers, we get to enjoy it. Everything has a purpose, but for the wicked, even they have a purpose. 
And what is that purpose? It's for the building up of Christ's church. All right, next question. If God hates everyone from birth, what about babies who are born and then die before they have time to learn of God and seek him? So I personally hold um, that all names that are written in the book of life, as we're told by Scripture, are written before the foundation of the world. Um, I believe that, I mean, we can just put it into the context that it is abortion. Uh, we can ask that question. What about babies that are aborted? Would they come to know the Lord? Would they not? Now you can ask the same question of a three-year-old, a five-year-old. This gets into a cultural discussion about this thing called age of accountability. Um, if you've heard of that before growing up in church, you can go hunting for it in Scripture. You won't find it. Um, it's, it's not there. It's not implicit either. Um, so this is one a lot of different people wrestle with. But I kind of would like to believe and hold true to this idea that those babies who are being aborted um, day in and day out, the millions that have been killed, uh, get to go into immediate fellowship with their creator. That's my personal stance on that. Does God hate his children before they realize their need for him? Does God hate his children before they realize their need for him? Um, no. Um, so while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Um, that while we were weak, he would be made strong. He knew who would be his children again. That's the beauty of who God is. And this is one of those things that's hard to understand from a human perspective, but trying to see how God may see it and that he knows before the foundation of time who would be his. They're already stained with Christ's blood. Does that make sense? So it's not something like a progressive thing that God responded to somebody because they kind of made a right turn somewhere, right? Whether we know it or not, that would make God conditional. So if God at one point hated his children and then went to loving them, that would either invite the possibility that he went, sorry, he went from hating them to loving them based on their performance or their plea to him. That would make God conditional. That would make a never-changing, all-powerful God not so powerful and changing on the whims of a human, his creation. And so God has always known who would be his, who would not. And I would say he has loved his children unto himself. All right, another long one. Oh, yeah. never mind. Yes. He hates the wicked. That's just, and that's a difficult thing. Again, putting emotion aside as much as possible and understanding this, at least what Scripture says about it, is trying to come to terms that that's not our job necessarily. It should be sad. If you have a relationship with Christ in here tonight and you hear that, it shouldn't make you sad in who your Creator is. It should spur us as the church, if you can identify with Christ because the cross was for you, you should get out of here like somebody lit a fire under your rear end and go find the nearest classmate you can probably assume is not a believer and have a gospel conversation with them. Um, it's easier for us to sit back and be sad about that if we know who Christ is uh, than it is harder to go have a gospel conversation with somebody who doesn't know who Christ is yet. So if you want to go ahead and get to uh, Proverbs 6, as quoted in this one, um, and so the question is, when it lists six things that God hates and seven that are detestable in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, does this imply that these sins are worse than others? 
uh, not worse again. Uh, notice earlier when I was going through this, uh, worse in um, repayment. So sin is sin is sin, meaning the repayment for sin is death under the law uh, that Christ fulfilled, but even so under what would have been the law as far as moral obligation goes from the Old Testament and what that's a different talk for a different night. So just to read that for everybody, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. We went over this one last Q&A, so that was pretty, that was pretty cool. Uh, so that reads, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So as far as their repayment of death goes, that's a baseline. Again, sin is sin is sin, and it's all worthy of repayment for death. But as far as consequent goes, that can vary. Uh, there's a reason sexual immorality is laid out so much in the Bible. When I say laid out, I both mean in its explicitness, but also in how it's set aside many times all throughout Romans, all throughout Proverbs, is that it carries deeper weight. So uh, just to be real with everybody, it's, it, it cuts deeper scars. Then to go back to the example of that I gave earlier, if I stole a candy bar, right, from, uh, I don't know, Golden Pantry versus shooting Tyler. Uh, one is going to have far deeper and greater ramifications than the other. Uh, that's the same way in sanctification for a Christ follower. That's the same way in how somebody, somebody's heart's hardened uh, through wickedness. One can be gradual through maybe just even, think about this, right? Um, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Somebody who was seemingly like a good person, right? He made a lot of money. He did a lot of good things with that money, uh, but seemingly never professed Christ, professed Christ, even denounced him. Um, based on his life and the fruit of it, it's safe to assume he's separated from the Lord right now. Uh, so he didn't necessar necessarily go out and commit genocide. So his hardening of heart was maybe more gradual, if that makes sense, than it was Hitler's of being given over to a debased mind. Um, if that makes sense. So as far as repayment goes, the baseline is death and repayment for sin. But as far as consequent goes for the Christ follower and the wicked, uh, it's pretty different. You mean the consequence are? Yes, and eternal. Okay. Yep. Yep. Next question is, how can God and Christ be one in the Trinity if God hates sin and sinners? While Christ actively works to save sinners, this feels like a conflict in the Trinity. How did Christ actively work to save sinners? I, I don't know who asked that. I, was, I, don't, I guess I was like 10% banking on whoever asked that and saying something. Um, but I would say more so Christ's life came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. So let's remember that. It came to seal Christ's uh, children in his blood rather than uh, die for everybody. Because remember, if he died for everybody, then everybody would be saved. But if everybody's not saved, then that made Christ not a perfect sacrifice. And then you got to go down the line. If Christ wasn't a perfect sacrifice, then God's not a perfect God. And if God's not a perfect God, then the Bible's a lie. And if the Bible's a lie, then God didn't write it. And if God didn't write it, it doesn't exist. And there really is no point in being here. Uh, Paul says it's vanity. Um, so I don't know whose bubble just got popped, but there's great joy because the opposite of all that is true. Uh, Christ came, and the work of the cross sealed uh, his children in his blood. Um, it wasn't aimless, um, and they're not at odds. They're one. They can't be. Um, so 
even so, Christ is interceding on behalf of his children, even now, at the right hand of God, even right now. Um, they're not at odds. It is God's will, the Trinity's will, uh, that the church would be established and God would be glorified. We just read in Romans, even the wicked accomplish that. They have a purpose in building up the righteous. Uh, so not at odds, but in perfect harmony. Uh, they just play different roles. That's currently all the ones we have right now. Oh, so cool. back to open floor. Uh, I think one maybe might spark more conversation. We can go to Psalm 7, uh, 11 through 16. Psalm 7, 11 through 16. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. Uh, his mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Um, I love this one. It goes back to what we talked about, a just repayment. And so all of this, all of this, even if we look at and those who are saved in Scripture, they are justly repaid, not by their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And pay attention to the verbiage in this passage here. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. It's of his natural mind. It's his natural heart. He's pregnant with mischief, and naturally that gives birth to lies. In other words, as it goes on to say, he makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. If you've ever heard the term, he makes his grave and he lies in it. Uh, the dirt is heaped back over him. Uh, that's clear. It's, it's a repayment, a just repayment. Yeah, Kaylee. I think it's like not about really discipline. Is, is it a God received discipline for sin or for life? We, we receive discipline, uh, rebuke. That's actually a sign of how God loves us. Um, it is conviction, in other words. If you're not familiar with that word, it's when you sin and you actually understand that sin uh, is almost uh, an, uh, a visual spitting in the face of the God of the universe who sent his son himself to die and shed blood for you. Yet you know this, you've tasted and seen that it is good, not only good, but the best thing, and still pursue something else, that sinking pit stomach feeling you get like you uh, just did the wrongest wrong uh, conviction that's what I'd said uh, my fan theory that I think is just scripturally based is that those who are children of God as they come into this Kaplinko board of life and they're being pulled up they can see and know and feel the friction of sin but those who aren't will never question uh, there may be a moral question uh, but never an eternal question. Uh, never uh, uh, in the midst of sin wondering, well, I wonder if uh, God will forgive me for this. Maybe a passing moral sense, but never a serious conviction, if that makes sense. Never an actual wondering of where they'll spend eternity. Depraved? Is it, like, I don't know. Do you guys think like that? Like, is it, 
It could be, but it's, it's good to remember, again, none of us came into this world saved. Um, in the eyes of God, yes, before the foundation of the world, but again, we didn't know that. So maybe that was your earliest inklings of wondering who God is until he revealed himself to you uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, last year, yeah, well, there you go. Time flies. Um, but no, again, we all come in. Uh, that's not our natural leaning. God has to bring us to that point. He loves us unto that point. Another one that might get things going here. Uh, James 4.4, 4, um, to kind of paint wickedness in a different light. Um, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Um, that could be one that maybe somebody I thought would maybe bring up, or somebody could bring that up to you if you're... Um, out and about, uh, especially the question could be raised then to play devil's advocate. Um, isn't the whole point of being a Christian to reach the world? How can we reach the world if we don't seek to be a friend of the world? And I mean, you understand that line of reasoning, right? Um, but the same can be said. Uh, uh, pay attention to the verbiage of it. Adulteresses, it's written to the church here, um, uh, the Christian um, and understanding, again, like we talked about, what makes somebody a Christian is that they've experienced the grace of the Lord. They've come to know, taste, and seen that He is good. He is the perfect sacrifice. So an adulteress at that point would be have to seen the most perfect thing that could have ever been offered, because He was, and instead trying to be friends with the world as if it's a secure way to live, as if it's a secure foundation. And so it goes on to say, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world rather than the opposite so you have to introduce the fact that it's wicked even like i just laid out we think of we hear wicked we hear sin we hate we hear hate it's easy for our minds to go to the most extreme of circumstances we have to remember god's perfect holiness we have to remember what he can be around it's holiness itself that's why he makes his children holy but if somebody even alone wants friendship with the world uh, that's why it's such a great fear of mine to see so many young people who would claim to be Christians uh, try to almost pair the two and match the two. And for anybody in this room um, who professes or who is wondering uh, why so many Christians may look like the world, uh, it's a great fear that maybe if they have more interest in looking like the world to reach the world, uh, they don't understand their, the Messiah and uh, Savior Jesus Christ looked nothing like the world. He was hated by the world. Uh, his followers were hated by the world. His disciples were killed by the world. Um, that doesn't mean we go stand on corners and scream at the world, uh, but maybe it's not so necessary for pastors on big stages to wear, and I know this is something that, whatever, uh, but maybe it's not so necessary for pastors to wear uh, giant holes in their knees at 40 years old and bring red sports cars out on stages as sermon illustrations. Uh, there's no reason for it. Uh, it certainly doesn't glorify the Lord. And so it's a slippery slope trying to pair the world with God rather than take God into the world as a Christ follower is supposed to do. We did get one more question. If God hates people, how come Jesus himself said that God so loved the world in John 3.16? Yes. Sweet. Somebody asked it. <laughs> All right. So as we get there, John 3.16. Um, for God's sake, who, who can recite it in here? The ESV version. 
Why ESV? Somebody asked that one. Um, why do I harp on the ESV? The ESV is the most closely translated version of the Bible to its original manuscripts. Uh, because of that, it's a little hard to read in some spots, but I would challenge everybody in your quiet time and your small group studies, but if you come to the branch, your MCs, DNAs, use the ESV. Uh, just try it out. If it gets hard to read, don't just skip over or switch to a different version. Uh, sit in it for a little bit. See the friction. Check the cross-references. I promise it'll be a richer studying experience. Uh, but what is the world in that context? And so let me ask this question, and this is important to understand um, in the context. Uh, we also see something similar um, in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, if you want to make note of it. That reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, that's the world that John 3.16 is referring to. Uh, it's not saying the whole world. Again, just looking at it from a logistic standpoint. If Christ died to save the world, but not all of the world is saved, then Christ is a failure. It's, just, um, it's, a, it's a logistic reasoning at that point. Yeah, and so even Second Peter 3, 9, uh, to provide further scripture, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's another one that could be easy to misunderstand, that that means that all should be saved. But if I were to ask everyone in this room, is everyone here? As if I was a teacher taking attendance. If I were to ask, is everyone here? Am I asking if everyone in the world is here or everyone from a specific group of my class is here? Does that make sense? I'm not asking if all the world is here. I'm asking if every one of my class is here. In the same sense, that's the all that that's referring to. That's the world that John 3.16 is referring to because John 3.16 or John 3.16 through 19 paints a much more clear picture that it automatically goes ahead and talks about those who would deny the light after they have seen the light but instead love the darkness. Uh, so we can already see that the world doesn't really mean what we would think it means to be the whole world but rather how beautiful it is that um, Christians, when they reach the throne room of God, they're going to see the world represented in every tribe, nation, and tongue and that the all in Second Peter 3.9 it's talking about all of God's children he knows will come to know him. That's why the Lord is slow or patient in fulfilling his promise that he's coming back. That's the promise, uh, as Kyle talked about, a uh, covenant promise that Christ is coming back to claim his children here. What does it mean for us to hate our sin? Oh, that's a great question. What does it mean for us to hate our sin? Well, to begin with, it means to understand sin. Uh, you can't hate sin if you don't understand sin. You can't understand sin if you don't understand who God is. Um, so to start with the baseline, God being perfect, God being holy, 
Christ being perfect, the perfect sacrifice, the one who makes it possible to hold up sin next to perfection. Uh, before then, there was no perfect example. There was no uh, authentic, uh, almost copy to check against. Uh, we had no way of knowing, but God in his mercy sent his son so that he would die for our sins. We would come to know our sins through his blood. That's why we say here, you can only understand sin, understand God's grace once you've experienced the gospel. And that is once you've come to understand that life apart from Christ isn't just meaningless, but it carries no weight, it carries no enjoyment, it carries no true life. That the eternal life laid out isn't just something that we cash in on once we die if we know Christ, but it's something that starts now as you come to know him in light of your sin. Right, so how do we hate our son? You first have to know who God is. You first have to understand the sacrifice that Christ made. But then practically, once you have done that, if you have, how do you hate your sin? It's falling more in love with your Savior every single day. And seeing he's the one that holds you and satisfies your soul. And seeing that sin has nothing to offer you, not in enjoyment, not in eternity, not in making you closer to your Savior. So hating it every step of the way. Being careful with what you watch. Yes, it means not watching Game of Thrones. Yes, it means not watching certain things. It means not listening to certain music. And it's not in a pharisaical way. It's not in a legalistic way to earn more of God's love, but it's out of how much you understand God loves you. It's out of wanting to be closer to the Savior you hate sin. So I hope that helps. Can the non-elect honor God? Uh, God will honor himself through their actions. So their vessels of wrath... Uh, are honoring God in their result, uh, but that's a tricky thing there. Can they honor God? Um, I would say maybe on the surface, no. Uh, they don't know God, uh, but their purpose will certainly add to his glory, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, it's one of my favorite examples to use. It's definitely a go-to, and I already threw his name out there, but Adolf Hitler, when he carried out the genocide, there was a believer named Corey Timboom who followed in the wake of his destruction, um, and there was a booming... Uh, revival of the church in Germany after uh, the concentration camps were shut down and everything after Hitler took his toll. Uh, in the same way in China right now overseas, the underground church in China is blowing up in the midst of those who are trying to kill it, those who hate the Lord. Um, so are they directly honoring God and their actions? No, because it's inflicting God's elect, but it's also building up the church in China in a beautiful way. And this is the last one that I have right now. Um, how can God hate sinners while also, quote, desiring that none should perish, end quote? And that is 2 Peter 3.9. So if you guys want to turn there in 2 Peter 3.9. Alex, you want to read that again real quick? Yeah, so the question was, how can God hate sinners while also, quote, desiring that none should perish, end quote, and that is Second Peter Sweet. again, 3.9. Thank you, thank you. So jump to verse 8 there. You don't have to jump too far back, uh, but you can see where we pick up, and it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Uh, underline that, highlight it, circle it. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. Continue in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So again, the any and the all that it's referring to are the word that you circled, underlined, highlighted. It's the beloved. Uh, it's Christ's children, his beloved. Uh, we can also know this uh, in the call to repent that's laid out in verse 9. Uh, not that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, those who are going to reach repentance, uh, if you're not familiar with that word, is to coming to understand Christ and the sacrifice he made. And then your salvation, your belief in Christ is rooted in repentance. It, it is recognizing the life you may be leading apart from him and sa- seeing and realizing that that is death apart from Christ. It does not matter And repenting, recognizing and turning uh, to Christ. And so the only ones who are going to be able to do that are those who are made able, whose eyes are open to the glory of the Lord, and those who understand Him, God's chosen, God's elect, His children. Uh, So again, that's why that word right there is so valuable, beloved. Uh, But don't overlook this one fact, beloved. Um, And that's the any and all that it's talking about there. Well... Cool. All right. Uh, does God hate us when we sin, or just hate our sin? Is the I'm assuming the us there. Um, I don't know. Uh, is that referring to uh, Christ followers, or is that referring to? Those who are wicked. You get two different answers. Uh, One is yes, one is no. (laughs) In simple terms, does God hate his children? Uh, No. Uh, Why is that? Um, While we are yet sinners, we're identified with Christ as Christ's children. Uh, He can't hate himself. He does not hate his son. He certainly wishes to kill the sin in us. That's why he commands us to hate our own sin. Um, Paul says that his flesh Uh, continues to do the things he does not want to do, although the spirit is willing, the mind is not. Um, That being said, he does not hate his children, but rather uh, disciplines them unto obedience and repentance. Uh, Kaylee asked that great setup question earlier. Uh, He disciplines his children. He does not hate them. And I I think it's such a loss, uh, especially, again, if you can say you know Christ in the room, and if you're mad at him right now because life is hitting you hard, um, consider maybe he might be disciplining you and maybe that's a sign of his love consider the alternative if he's not disciplining you go and read in romans about those who are disobedient who he turned over to their own lustful passions um their end result was destruction uh, as a as a civilization um so god doesn't hate his children uh despite their sin rather he disciplines them unto uh, the image of his son one day we did get another one when going through life, is it normal to fall into sin? Does this mean that we are not saved or not in God's truth? And there is another question after this one. I think after that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. So, okay. yeah. Uh, is, it, is it, we got it. And when going through life, is it normal to fall into sin? Does this mean that we are not saved or not in God's truth? Uh, to fall into sin, no. Uh, by no means. Is it normal? Yes. Uh, why? Because you still have flesh. I just referenced Paul there. 
Uh, it's still a natural leaning of your flesh, although if you know Christ, it's not how your uh, spirit is working because it's His Spirit within you. It's the Spirit that makes you aware of sin. So it was a natural, uh, is it natural uh, by um, your flesh? Yes. Is it natural uh, by your growth in the Spirit? Um, no. That's why you're commanded to hate it and fight it. You're given the power then and freed from sin and chained to righteousness, as Romans 6.16 tells us, uh, to fight that sin. Um, so does this mean that we are not saved uh, or not in God's truth? Again, uh, thinking that we is referring to Christ followers and Christ children. Uh, when we fall into sin, that's why the local church is so important. Um, again, if you're coming here on Thursday nights, but you're not coming here on Sunday mornings, uh, you're, not, you're not getting the most out of it. Uh, I mean, this is all good and well, and I love these nights and chance to come and sit and talk about this stuff because I don't know another place around that does it. And this pushes minds to think. It pushes us to think more about the Lord and not just accept what somebody's trying to tell us. Go home and study all these things that we're talking about. Read the verses you've written down. But this is why the local church is so important. Falling into sin... Uh, no, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but there's certain, um, again, pits where you have to wonder if somebody continues to fall into sin, if they're not living, just living in sin. If somebody's living in sin, uh, then that means are they loving their sin or are they loving their Savior? Because if they've been loved by the Savior, then there's no way they're going to love their sin. Um, that was my life growing up. I thought I loved Christ. I thought I lived for Him, but I loved sin a whole lot more, and that was clear to me when I turned 13. Um, and actually realize how much Christ loved me, and then after that, hate my sin. So does it mean you're not saved? No. Again, if you're feeling that tug, if you're feeling that pull, it means you're being disciplined. It means the Father loves you. Um, so, yeah. So this is our last question of the night, and I think it's a really good one to end on. How do you know if you are wicked or not? How do you know if you're wicked or not? Man, that's a, that's a broad one there. Um, I would say... Uh, to ask a question back to that for everybody in this room um, is if you just want to ask yourself kind of a, a feeler question, um, and this is about as broad as that question, but why do you live this life? I mean, you don't have to answer. It's rhetorical by all means, but it, it's a simple question of why do you live life? And uh, it's it's easy if, if any answer is given other than to know the Lord and fall more in love with him and make his name known so others can come to love him and know him. Um, it's not living for the glory of God. Um, ultimately, it is, it is a waste. It's vanity. Um, so how do we know if we're wicked? Um, examine yourself. Scripture calls us to. Uh, hold your life up next to Christ. Not that you can ever match it, but are you even doing that right now to begin with? Or rather, would you rather rest in Christ's life? Um, it's a fine line, but I would encourage everybody not to go home and throw a pity party, right? That's not the point of this. Again, remember, hate isn't this emotional, uh, impulse-driven passion um, in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of God. It is favor or not favor. Um, so if life is hard right now or if life has been hard on you and, and you're thinking that God doesn't care, that God's not present and God doesn't love you, maybe consider the fact you're trying to find God in everything that's not. Uh, maybe God is trying to take away everything from you except himself to show you just how rich 
this life is, show you how rich his mercy is. Um, but again, how do you know if you're wicked or not? It starts with, do you know who Christ is? Do you know what the cross did? Do you really? Uh, and more than that, do you want to know more and more every day? Those are some safe kind of feeler questions for everybody to go out with. Cool? That was a good one. Go back and listen to it. If you have any more questions, you can keep texting that number in. Uh, we'll keep them on our minds here um, and certainly go over them some more. I hope this was beneficial, definitely. Thank you guys so much for participating. I know, again, you could have been somewhere else, but thanks for investing your time here tonight. Again, hope it was beneficial. Keep asking questions no matter where you're at in this Christianity thing, no matter what you think, uh, no matter what you thought beforehand. I hope it made you think differently or deeper in different ways. And we love you guys, and we hope to see you Sunday. All right? Cool. See ya.